essentially what you're going to do as a user, you're going to walk into a bathroom, you're going to see a urinal, and you're going to just pee as per usual. This is Dr. Dylan Randall. And no, he's not a behavioral psychologist. I'm a chemical engineer by training. He's a senior engineering lecturer specializing in water quality. The idea would be that the the user actually wouldn't even know what's happening inside the urinal. He's also an inventor in a slightly unusual field, and his work could change the way we think about our water systems forever. At the moment, we're making fertilizer, we're even making biomaterial, and we grew the world's first bio brick from urine in 2018. So the question I always ask is, what else can we make from urine? This podcast is brought to you by Jojo, a proud supporter of South Africa's water activists and a proud supplier of water solutions for a better quality of life. By protecting our most precious resource, Jojo's quality products help to safeguard the well-being of people, communities and the environment and the people working tirelessly to protect it. Welcome to For Water For Life the podcast that tells extraordinary stories of ordinary people and water. They've made it their mission to preserve, purify and protect the water supply where we live in a water-scarce and unequal country called South Africa. I'm Gugulete Mtlungo. And how is Sekwetlani Pamodi today? Well, I'm very good, thank you. You could say I'm a number one rather than a number two today. (laughs) (laughs) So we're back in the shadow of the mountain. Yes, we're in Cape Town in the Western Cape on the southwestern coast of South Africa. On the slopes of the mountain, actually, at the engineering department of the University of Cape Town. More specifically, we're at the Future Water Institute, where Dylan does his research. My colleagues and I look at a vast range of topics all in the water field. And... We are working on, at least with the work I'm doing, with social scientists, chemists, microbiologists, to try and understand the, the work that I'm leading better so that it can ultimately end up helping society. So Cape Town experienced one of its worst droughts in memory in 2017. The city was even counting down to the day it had to shut the taps off. What we found in our visits to the city is that while the drought caused tremendous suffering, it also spurred some incredibly innovative water solutions. Dylan's award-winning work is all about reusing water, or more specifically, processing wastewater streams into something useful. It's part of a broader project where we're looking at sustainable sanitation. So if you rethink our sanitation system, so as an example, if you consider how much water you use just to flush toilets and urinals, And is that actually wise? And the thing that sparked this interest or this relationship with water scarcity was obviously the drought in Cape Town. So as a result of that, we developed a fertilizer-producing urinal in 2017. And this allowed us to collect urine But it also allowed us to save water because essentially the urinals are 
waterless. So the person or the user would literally just pee into the urinal. It almost instantaneously, within 30 seconds, it's produced a solid fertilizer. Calcium hydroxide, or the mineral we call lime, is added to the urine to create fertilizer, which can then be used to grow food. But that's just the start of this incredible story. Before we go any further, I'm thinking it's probably a good idea to get the whole peeing thing out of the way. Yeah, right. It does seem a little far out to be using human waste as a fertilizer. So for sure, I think that's one of the biggest obstacles we face is the social acceptance of what we're doing. I mean, we know with animal waste, we're able to take animal dung and take that and put it into our soil to fertilize our crops and support soil fertility and that sort of thing. But that seems to be culturally more acceptable than human urine. I think it probably stems from the development of our modern sanitation system, where literally we flush our waste away and we don't have to deal with it. Where in the past, you had farmers and communities physically having to deal with buckets of their waste. And it was socially accepted. They were able to do that. But as diseases broke out and things like that, it became better to flush this waste away. But I think if we think about the system, right, the amount of water it uses, the fact that we don't recover value from these waste streams, we merely just treat it. That's the kind of discussion I would like to have. At first, the idea of collecting pee to work with freaked even Dylan out. But urine is 95 or 96% water, and in fact, it was a natural progression. The subject of his doctoral thesis was the treatment of wastewater from mining and how to use chemistry to turn that mining waste into something more useful. So we produced water and then multiple salts that could be sold as additional products. And so on that basis, I also then worked in consulting for two years, also in the water sector. Dylan's scientific fascination with urine started when he was working as a consultant for the Swiss Federal Institute of Aquatic Science and Technology on a project to rethink the toilet. When I first joined the Swiss Institute, I remember my Swiss boss at the time showing me a container in which I was supposed to pee and the urine then would be used for all the research that we were supposed to be doing at the time. And I remember joining and thinking, he wants me to do what? And I had this mindset about, oh, wow, this is so weird. And the irony is, that two years later, after working with it and being part of that as a project, when I returned to South Africa, I had my colleagues and students doing exactly the same thing. And I think this is the power of education. Once you start explaining the reasons why you should be doing something, and once people understand it, they actually start adopting it. Dylan's love for chemistry and his concern for the environment have taken him around the world for science competitions, on grants and to receive prizes, especially for his sustainability work. And when I returned to South Africa in 2017, the emphasis of my research then was to see what else we could produce from urine. 
The new engineering building on Upper Campus at UCT has great slabs of concrete on its facade that look like tectonic plates that could fold and transform into something else. In the distance, Devil's Peak Mountain looms. The building's indigenous gardens talk back to the mountain slope with its faint boss and astonishing biodiversity. Inside, enormous mobile sculptures hang, swirling atoms that play with the light. It is here that Dylan's team developed the fertilizer urinal. Well, to be honest, it's still basically a 25-litre container with a funnel that screws onto the top and a splashback to keep things neat and a little familiar. The container can then be removed to transport the urine in order for it to be processed. But in the container, we add something called calcium hydroxide, or the other name for it is just normal lime. And the purpose of the calcium hydroxide is actually the key to how the process works. So when you add calcium hydroxide, you increase the pH of the urine. pH is a measure of how acidic the liquid is. So if someone comes and pees into the container, the pH of the urine will increase to above 12. And this is key because this really high pH, it does a number of things. It is the reason why we're able to recover 96 to 97% of the phosphorus because the high pH initiates the solid formation of your calcium phosphate and hence you can remove it from the urine. So basically... Adding the lime creates phosphates, and phosphates are a natural fertilizer, and those fertilizer can be used for crops. But the high pH also kills pathogens or any harmful bacteria that might be present. So, for example, if you, urine is generally sterile, but if someone is ill, you might have things being passed through the urine. So we found that just by increasing the pH of the urine, you can actually degrade the pharmaceuticals. person or the user would literally just pee into the urinal, it almost instantaneously, within 30 seconds, it's produced a solid fertilizer. So here's the thing. Normally, phosphate is extracted from phosphate rock but through mining. And it's precisely this, the phosphate mining and its impact on water purity, that took us west of Cape Town to Langeban to meet environmental organizer Nicola Fulyun. I live on a small farm just outside Hopefield, which is about 37 kilometers from Langebaan. It's mostly feinbos, which is exquisite during winter and especially during spring. And then the rest of the year, when it gets really dry, we have the sea and we have the Langebaan Lagoon, which is like a jewel. And it's an incredibly popular place to go for holiday makers. But Nicola and her community have had to become environmental organisers after a mining licence was granted in their area. They wanted to know exactly what the environmental impact of the mine was going to be on the Langeban Lagoon. (laughs) 
and it's for phosphate and for silica mining. One of our biggest concerns is that the chemicals that are used traditionally in phosphate mining is very harmful to the environment. The mining site is right on top of the Eelandsfontein aquifer, which is the aquifer that feeds the Longabon Lagoon, and there are quite a substantial number of farmers that rely on water from the Eelandsfontein aquifer to be able to farm. It's strip mining, so it's not underground. So it's vast tracts of land that is basically stripped, uh, meaning it's dug up. All of that then is transported to a processing plant um, where it undergoes various chemical treatments and stuff in general. There's also a debate about how much of this phosphate rock we have in reserve in South Africa. We are, after all, one of five countries that hold the bulk of the world's phosphate rock supply. I think the more urgent thing that we have to consider is the environmental degradation that those mining operations would usually lead to, right? So rather than mining for this precious phosphate rock, we could be recovering it from urine instead and keep lagoon water systems safe from mining waste. Firstly, it's at its most beautiful in August, September and October. It's like a celebration of life. But even in the drier months, there is still a beauty... You can listen to Nicola's upcoming episode for her water story. It's been making the news for all the right reasons. Back in Cape Town, phosphate, it seems, is an excellent example of how things could be better in a circular economy which sustains instead of only extracting. So, for example, the EU, the European Union, is aggressively targeting the recycling of phosphorus from their wastewaters because of this because they realize the urgency of being self-reliant on their own reserves, which they are essentially producing. And if they recycle that, you have this more circular economy in terms of phosphorus rather than a linear approach. So I think that's what we should be focusing on, looking at this in the sense that you alleviate the environmental degradation, you are recycling this to be used elsewhere, so back to the fertilizer urinal. The phosphate has been created in the urinal and the container has been removed and taken to the laboratory. It would have to go through a filtration system to remove the solid calcium phosphate. And then that solid calcium phosphate now can be dried and then you have your first fertilizer. In, in this case, the, the solid fertilizer. Then the liquid component, you can do now multiple things with it. You could concentrate that liquid stream and produce a liquid fertilizer that is now rich in urea. Because, by the way, urea is also a very good um, fertilizer and it's often used in agricultural fields. There's lots of synergies there and it's just by simply asking the question, what else can we make from Europe? The answer, as Dylan discovered, lies in trying new things in the lab. 
In a vast open workspace at the bottom of the university's new engineering building, there's heavy-duty equipment everywhere. And on the one side, two stories of workrooms and laboratories. In Dr. Randall's, it's all shiny metal tables, beakers, vials and tubes. And then the, the other really cool thing that this treatment process does is it prevents the, the breakdown of another component in urine. And this component is called urea. You can recover the urea as relatively pure urea crystals. In this urea component, there's still quite a bit of carbon left over. When calcium is introduced into this liquid, it forms calcium carbonate. This is the same substance which nature uses to create seashells and coral reefs. So again, looking to nature for inspiration, Dylan and his team have developed a process which uses the leftover urine from the fertilizer production step to produce a brick. And essentially what we do with the biobrick process, we take loose material. So for the feasibility study, we just took normal sea sand, but you can use any, any loose aggregate. You could use building rubble, mining waste or whatever, and you colonize it with bacteria that produces an enzyme. So an enzyme is like a, it speeds up a reaction. So in this case, the enzyme is called urease. And essentially what it does is it starts gluing all the loose sand particles together with calcium carbonate. And eventually you'll get a solid forming of any shape you choose. The transparent perspex-looking brick mold stands on little legs in the laboratory. It has plastic tubes running into it from a glass bottle that contains a golden liquid. So if you do this in the shape of a biobrick, then you're going to get a brick. If you do it in the shape of a column, you're going to get a column. So you force the system to solidify over typically a period of four to six days of forming any shape you want. The world's first biobrick from urine solidifies at room temperature. Regular bricks need to be fired in a kiln that burns at a heat of up to 1,400 degrees Celsius. It takes a lot of energy and also produces climate-damaging carbon emissions. But not the solid grey biobrick that's made from urine. And that's after the fertiliser got made first. So if you think about the amount of water we use just to flush, let's say we're just peeing in the toilet or urinal, right? We can use up to 30 to 40% of our daily water usage as an individual just to flush toilets. I mean, that's shocking. And this is really good quality water. That's water you could literally drink. But we are using it to flush away something that is valuable. And then we spend money and energy at water treatment plants to remove those components. But if we upfront collected the urine using no water, so in waterless urinals or even innovative toilets, we can save 30 to 40% of our daily water usage. So the 60 to 80% of the nutrients that are there, which we can use to make fertilizers, which then can be used to grow food rather than importing fertilizers, which many countries end up doing. I mean, everyone produces urine. Dylan says there could be many more uses of this abundant supply of pea to be found 
in his urine toolbox approach. For example, what if Joburg City could make bricks from its hazardous and dusty mine dumps? Anglo Golden Santi also wanted to see whether they could use the same process we use to glue the loose sand particles together to actually glue dust particles that typically form on these solid mine dumps. And what if, in Kailicha Township in Cape Town, a team of young eco-warriors started encouraging their communities to recycle waste to create eco-bricks that were traded for seedlings to grow your own food? So what we do, we, we start from recycling, you know, at our homes. And then at school we do, we have events where we teach um, our peers at school about water awareness, you know, and also climate change. I recycle and then since I have my group that I teach my children, so I took those um, papers that I recycled and collect my children and we stuff the, those papers in a two-litre bottle um, to make eco-bricks. And then we really inspire these kids to, to um, find solutions, you know. But the very first thing is knowledge. But the wonderful Yoli and Kola are a story for another episode of For Water for Life. A last word to Dylan. I often think about what else can we make from other waste streams. And if we get that right, if we're constantly rethinking waste streams as a resource instead, I think we would achieve a sustainable future much faster. I mean, if you think about it, nature actually produces no waste. All waste streams are completely recycled. I'm Sekwetlane Pamudi. And I'm Kukule Tumtlungum. Thank you for joining us for this episode. All of our podcasts are available at jojo.co.za. The series was made possible because of Jojo, For Water For Life. Find us on social media at For Water For Life and share your water stories using the hashtag listen to the water. Because if you do, it can change your life. From the Jojo family to yours, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of For Water for Life. Whether you're looking for top quality storage tanks, water filters or other water solutions, Jojo has the product ideal for you. Discover our range at jojo.co.za and find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest product news and water related content. 